Now that's power. <laughs> we are again in the book of Acts, though, and uh, an exciting moment in the life of the gospel and in the origin story, the birth story of the church. We read the book of Acts uh, to discover what earliest Christianity looked like. If you, if you want to try and understand the Christian faith in the middle of a sea of alternatives and controversy, it's always good to go back to the beginning. What, what did the authentic experience look like? What did the real thing look like in those early days? The book of Acts is the place to start. And what you get in the passage we're looking at this morning is something that I think is very germane, very relevant to the life that we live 21 centuries later. As you'll recall, those of you who have been tracking with us, the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts deal with the, the launch of the church of Jesus Christ, and it launches first in Jerusalem. And so when those early followers go out, they go out taking the message, the good news, to people who have a background within Judaism. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures. They had the expectation of a coming Messiah. For 13 chapters, the primary audience for the gospel were people who were born into the Jewish faith or those who are called God-fearers, which is kind of the New Testament language for people who might not have been born into a Jewish family, but they knew something of the Old Testament and they had adopted many of the beliefs of Judaism. And then in chapter 13, everything begins to change. It's like the experience of, of suddenly breaking through the glass window or escaping the, the confines of a tight box. And the gospel begins to break out into the rest of the world. It started last week in Antioch, and it continues and it really grows this week in chapter 14. And what happens for the first time, and this is why it's so relevant, is that the gospel goes into a situation that is dramatically pluralistic, meaning all kinds of different belief alternatives, polytheistic, people acknowledge and recognize all kinds of different things they might name or recognize as being God, and there is no shared background or understanding of, uh, of the Bible or expectation of what it would teach. It's non-Christian, or in our world we might say it's post-Christian. And the question that surfaces in Acts chapter 14 is how does the gospel connect in a world that is all of those things, pluralistic, polytheistic, non-Christian or post-Christian? Because uh, if you're just waking up, it's not 1950 anymore. And that's the world that we live in, in the GTA. When you get to Acts chapter 14, you get this very brief kind of truncated speech from the Apostle Paul. Why is it brief? Because it's not planned. This is not a prepared sermon. This is sort of improvised. It's extemporaneous. It's in reaction to the activity of a mob, and it gets cut off just as quickly as it starts. But you see in this, in this beginning encounter with a world that's pluralistic and non-Christian, you see a number of strands for how the gospel begins to engage that kind of a world. And where you see it most fully developed, and we'll get to it a few weeks from now after Christmas, is in Acts chapter 17. If you want to go home and, and see the ideas fully developed that are kind of previewed this morning in Acts chapter 14, you'll find it there. But very quickly, here are the four things 
that you find in Acts chapter 14 that are relevant to how the gospel engages a non-Christian culture. Here's the first. Love the needy. These are in your notes, by the way. They, they cared for, for deep human needs. Secondly, identify the idols. Thirdly, endure hardship when it comes. And fourthly, address or fulfill the longings of people. So we're going we're gonna to unpack those things. But first, let's read the text. Acts chapter 14. Open up your Bibles and join me. We're going to start at verse 8. Now in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul as Paul was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had the faith to be healed. He called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up, and he began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out, In the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, They tore their clothes, a sign of distress, and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We're bringing you good news. We're telling you to turn from these worthless things. Turn to the living God. God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. And yet, he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and he provides you with plenty of food, and he fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul, and they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. They walked back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city. They won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They said, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Lord Jesus, the world has changed. 21 centuries have brought innovation and progress in some areas and and yet some things remain the same. And so we pray, God, that as we as we struggle, as people within this church, as as people who are seeking wisdom around who you are, as people who carry a zeal for how we might share something that's become so real and so exciting and such good news for us, we pray, God, that, that the example of the early church might connect somehow with the struggles of our world, that there might be a word here, a word of challenge or 
or of education, uh, a word that equips us, a word that renews us, a word that mobilizes us again to be your people for this generation. God, help us to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four characteristics. The first one, love the needy. I don't want to belabor this because we've kind of covered some of this ground before, but notice in the very beginning, just before Paul starts speaking, it says there was a man there. He was lame. He'd been born that way, been that way since birth. And he was there in the crowd. He was, he was listening. Paul saw him listening, hanging on every word, maybe sensed the hope that was building inside of him that, that something might happen. And he reached out to him and he healed him. And what you have there is an example in a long line of examples of word and deed being fused together in the work of the gospel. Something we've seen from the very beginning. Jesus did it. He didn't just preach. He didn't just tell great stories or offer wonderful sermons. He, he addressed the needs of those who were sick. He fed those who were hungry. He comforted those who were going through seasons of grief. He ministered in word and in deed, and the two of them were together. Peter started the ball rolling in the life of the early church, way back at the beginning of the book of Acts, some months ago when we looked at it. He preached and he healed. And if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Philip, he goes to Samaria. Remember, not only does he bring a word... But he also heals and he frees those who are captured in, in a kind of spiritual and psychological bondage. And the Bible says in each case, when people saw the deeds, they listened to the words. When they saw what people did, they listened to what they said. Word and deed belonging together. And here Paul does the same thing. Now somebody says, no, wait, wait, wait. these are miraculous deeds, so no wonder people paid attention. Don't, don't get hung up just on that. It wasn't always miraculous deeds. And a miracle was only one of the ways, one of many ways that God addresses what's the basic issue. It's the human need, whether for, for feeding or, or healing or, or encouragement or comfort. Acts chapter 6, you remember the apostles were out there, they were teaching, they were giving good news, it was the ministry of the word, but they also knew it was important to take care of those human needs. And so they created a group of officers for the first time in the life of the early church. They called them the diakonos, and they set them aside. You know that word in English, right? Diakonos? Deacons. This is our first deacons board. And they were charged with the responsibility of the ministry of deeds, you take care of tangible human needs. It wasn't miraculous, but that wasn't the point. The point was you address real need. Word and deed, living together. When people saw the deeds, they listened to the words. It was as simple as that. The ministry of the gospel, the word ministry, was to talk about Jesus and everything that he did as he, as he poured out his life for people. But what is it we're supposed to do? That was the ministry of deeds, to embody the gospel by, by likewise pouring ourselves out to meet the needs of neighbors. And it was simple. And, and when they went together, there was credibility. And when they're separated, the world loses faith in the credibility of the message. Don't get caught up on the notion that this always has to happen miraculously. In fact, in the middle of a consumeristic culture, 
Is there anything so revolutionary, so counterintuitive, so almost miraculously looking as a group of people who set aside time, which is precious, and money, which is obsessive in our culture, and give it away to meet human needs? That feels miraculous these days. It's actually, it is a miracle of what God does inside a human life. We do ministry together, word and deed. Here's the second thing, and this really is the heart of what Paul is doing here. Identify the idols. Let's look at this brief speech. It starts down in verse 15. The crowd thinks that Barnabas and Saul are Hermes and Zeus. The gods come down to earth. It says there in verse 15, this is Paul speaking, no, 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 we're only human beings. In fact, we're, we're human beings, just we came to give you some encouraging news, some good news. The gospel. But what is the good news? Look carefully. He says, I'm telling you that you can turn away from these worthless things to the living God. To God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything. God hasn't left himself without testimony. Even though you haven't acknowledged him, he's shown kindness to you. He gives rain from heaven. He gives crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. What I want you to notice is, is how absolutely different this presentation of the gospel is from what we've seen before. In fact, it's even different from what we saw last week in Antioch. And Antioch was a multinational city, but it's still a mixed crowd in Antioch. This is not a mixed crowd. These are all polytheists. This is a, a world of non-Christian believers and seekers. It's a mixed crowd. It's a it's a pagan crowd. And a word about that word, because the word pagan sounds derogatory. It's not meant to be derogatory, it's just descriptive. Pagan actually means rustic or rural, a recognition that, that those, those beliefs emerged in the time when the world was primarily rural and remote, and then they were carried forward into the cities. It's not, it's not meant to be derogative. But notice the change. Up until now, this is how the gospel was presented. And see if this resonates with, with how the gospel has been presented in your hearing. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed. Here is the gospel. Everyone who believes in him is set free from the sin that entangles them and is restored in right standing to God. Those who feel guilty and inadequate because they haven't fulfilled the law, the law given primarily unto Moses, now are given new hope. That was the gospel. That's how it was presented. Even Paul presented it that way just last week in Antioch. He doesn't do any of that here. He doesn't quote the Bible because nobody would recognize the quote. There is no one-size-fits-all presentation of the gospel. And that's what I really want you to hear. At the heart of it, the, the, the good news is, is secure. It's constant. But the way that we present it, it changes from culture to culture, from generation to generation. What's at the heart doesn't change, but the packaging changes, right? Paul says, I become all things to all people. Why? So that by all possible means, some might be saved. I keep changing the package. I don't change the contents, but I change the way that it's presented. So here's the question. How do you package it up for a group of people 
who don't know anything about the Bible, who don't believe because they've never even heard of the laws, the Ten Commandments, who don't believe or acknowledge or know about a God who sits in judgment of the world and so don't feel guilty before God, don't believe in heaven or hell. How do you show people that they need Christ if they don't feel guilty? Does that feel like a relevant question for today? Sure it is, right? When Paul was talking in the synagogues, he'd say you need forgiveness. Why? Because you've tried hard to fulfill the law, but you haven't been able to do it, and you're dealing with this nasty guilt problem, but Jesus comes and he forgives. But he doesn't go there. He doesn't even use the word sin here. He doesn't use the word law. Not because those aren't real things, but because those things didn't have weight with his audience. So what he doesn't say is you're sinners and you need forgiveness. What he does say is you are enslaved. You're enslaved by what? By idols. And I'm going to give you something to set you free. Now you look in the, in the text there and you say, well, where is he talking about idols, pastor? I, I don't see it. It's right here. We're bringing you good news. This is... Chapter 14, verse 15. What's the good news? Good news is always a message of liberation. God is rescuing us from something. What are we being rescued from? I'm bringing you good news about these worthless things. We want you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. That phrase, worthless things, is the word idol. Now, admittedly, it's, it's a bit of a negative word. But you get a sense of what he's saying these gods that you worship, Hermes and Zeus, there's a worthlessness to them. It's kind of in your face, right? It, but there's an emptiness to them. It's deceptive. It's ineffective. Probably most importantly, though, they don't fulfill what they promise. These idols that you turn to, there's no fulfillment in them. Now, Let's step back for just a minute. Let's remember what a polytheistic society was like. It's not going to be that hard to imagine because it's kind of reappearing again. But in a polytheistic society, there is no shared or common notion that the world sits under the sovereignty of one God. That there is one living deity and everything else is subordinate to it. It's not a monotheistic world. Instead, there's there's many different kind of mini-gods associated with all the different facets of life and human endeavor. How do you decide which god to give your allegiance to, which god to worship or sacrifice to? Depended entirely on what you needed. If you were a soldier, you gave your allegiance to the god of war. Makes sense, right? If you were a merchant, then you went and worshipped at the temple of the god of commerce. There were all kinds of gods. If you were a farmer, you sacrificed to the god of agriculture. There was a god of love and one of beauty and one of romance. There were gods of music and art, worship team. Caesar himself was named a god. But since you didn't have any one all-encompassing allegiance, you sacrificed to whatever gods met the need of the day. And what that really meant is what you were worshipping was commerce, or love, or beauty, or music, or warfare. You're saying that this is my need, this is my purpose, 
This is the meaning of my life. And here's what Paul says in response. Those things are dead. I want to tell you about the living God. Those things are powerless. Let me tell you about the God of infinite power who made heaven and earth and everything in it. Those gods are empty, and you know that because they promise more than they can deliver. They take from you more than they actually give, but the true God is the opposite. So what's Paul saying? The true God always gives more than he requires. And even though you haven't acknowledged him or discovered him, you don't know him, you already know this to be true, because you've received these small signs, these reminders of his presence, these good things that are already there in your life. In a nutshell, you could summarize Paul and his presentation of the gospel here by saying, everybody lives for something. That's his lead-in. Everybody lives for something. I realize that's, that's different than the way you've heard the gospel presented before. But without too much of a tweak, I, I want to say that that's a way of communicating the gospel in Mississauga. Everybody lives for something. Well, somebody responds, I, I don't have some high allegiance to God. I'm not a religious person. I don't swallow all of that. Still, everybody lives for something. Everybody's sacrificing for something. Everybody looks to something for meaning and purpose in life. Whatever it is. Is it a strong enough foundation on which to build your life? If you're living for love and romance, you don't control your life. You're controlled by the people that you're desperate to have love you back. If you're living for money, you don't control yourself. If you're living for political power, you don't control yourself. You're controlled by power or money because you don't have anything to protect yourself from the possibility that gets taken away. Yesterday, I, I met an old friend in Lee Valley Tools. Good store. <laughs> um, I hope it's okay that I talk about this. Friend, if you're listening... Um, it was important. Uh, he, he talked very openly. He said, you know, I have kind of a philosophical thing I've been dealing with. All my life, my wife and I, we, we worked hard to achieve what we now enjoy. I remember we made our first million dollars. Uh, and then we made more after that. And now as I ease towards retirement, I realize that our whole lives are centered around how to protect that and how to grow that. And here's where I'm at philosophically, and these are his words. You know, I kind of wish that I could give it all away and go back to where I was at the beginning. I think he was realizing in that moment that that he had given his life to a God that could not satisfy. Paul says the true God, the living God, is the only one who when you serve him actually liberates you. All the other gods are worthless. They take more than they give. The true God, if you receive him, satisfies, fills your heart with joy. The others are shams. Let me conclude with this. It's, it's an important point and I don't want us to miss it. He starts where they are. Paul starts where his audience is. And he comes inside of their world. He says, okay, I, I see 
your allegiance to all these other things and they've got you enslaved and you're feeling empty, let me tell you about a God who won't give up on you. The true God. If all the other gods aren't fulfilling in your life, they're worthless, they're empty. But you see what he's doing is he's coming inside of their world and latching onto something that's already there. A belief, a conviction, an awareness, an experience. And he's using that as the launching off point for how to talk about the gospel. That is an absolutely key principle to how we are effective as witnesses. And it's based on this idea that God has placed in every culture, in every generation, in every nation, the key that is necessary to unlock that generation or culture or group to receiving the gospel. Now here's the problem. Sometimes, sometimes we think it's the skeleton key and that one key unlocks all the doors. What if it's not that way? What if the example of the early church and the apostle Paul, in fact, is is opening up lots of doors and saying, find what it is in the life or in the audience of the group that you're with that God has already placed there that will allow you to connect with the good news of the gospel. The key question is really this. What is it about the good news that will strike them as profoundly and deeply good? Find that. And then talk to them about faith. Trying to talk to other people about what it is you believe. Why should I need Jesus Christ in my life? They ask. What will you say? Well, because, because you've sinned. And you're guilty before a God who is standing in judgment of your life. You've broken the Ten Commandments. Whatever it is. You've gone outside of your marriage. You've been cheating or lying or stealing. You need Jesus because you need to be forgiven. What's a person going to say in the GTA? You know what they'll say. Hey, don't put that on me. That's your truth. That's not mine. Everybody gets to decide what's right or wrong. You can't impose your moral standards on another person. And see, now we're, now we're into this argument about morality and relative morality. Instead, if you say, Everyone is living for something. And whatever it is that you're living for, is it mastering you? Is it a strong enough platform on which to live your life? If you're angry or you're disappointed, you're frustrated, you're depressed, why are you th those things? What's gone wrong with the thing on which you have staked your whole life? And if the thing that you're building your life around, the thing that you love most deeply in your life, if that thing actually becomes a slave driver, can I tell you about the true God who will satisfy deep down the needs that you have? You know what they'll say? Maybe they'll say, hmm. Doesn't mean they'll believe right away. But at least they realize you're putting your finger on something that is real in their life. The feelings of frustration or inadequacy or anger, whatever it is. It's what Paul does and it's, it's why he's so effective in being able to shape the gospel so that people can hear it. 
Near the end of the passage, Paul and Barnabas, they leave a word of encouragement for the other disciples. It says in verse 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And that's sort of the third feature or facet of, of how they do the work of the gospel. Endure hardships. How do you like that one? <laughs> we did a membership class two weeks ago. I should have put that one in there. Love God, find a place to serve in the church, be committed to growing, and plan on hardships. And realize that how you endure hardship not only says something about God in your life, but is one of the most visible tools that God uses to connect with a generation of people. Nearest I can tell hardships, they have those two functions for us. First, they, they seem to be used by God to drive us into deeper Christ-likeness. I wish that weren't the way, but that seems to be the way. The things in the long run that actually give us greater dependence on God, a greater sense of humility and understanding, are those seasons of adversity. Humility and dependence of God, the ability to pray, all the things that actually in the long run give you a deeper sense of peace. We seldom find those things until we get on our knees and spend time. And boy, the time that we do that most is in seasons of suffering. So you could probably say that, that hardship is one of the ways, probably the primary way, that God drives us deeper into the kingdom of God. Otherwise, we're just playing around on the outside, living lives of of quiet tranquility or joyful activity with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. But, but suffering has a way of forcing you right to the heart of things. I don't think it means only that. Here's the other thing, though, that, that hardship does. It adds power to the witness of the church. One of the things that that most defined and characterized the early church was the way that they endured hardship. They took suffering with a patience and a graciousness and a lack of vindictiveness that was shocking to onlookers. Contrast that with, with the church today, which is so often vocal with violence and, and, and hate-filled rhetoric about enacting and extracting retribution and you know, when the great plagues first came upon the Mediterranean basin and people were literally dying in the streets and everybody fled for the hills, you know who stayed? The Christians. It's the beginning of the hospice movement and the hospital movement. They stayed because, Cyprian, a historian, has said, they didn't seem to be afraid of death. They weren't afraid of suffering. Because they knew it wasn't the end of the world if they suffered. Of course, many of you also know that, that a lot of those early believers were martyred. They were thrown to the lions, crucified along the Appian Way. And yet they faced death with a kind of poise and grace and a lack of vindictiveness that stunned people who looked on. Historians said sometimes they were even there singing hymns the moment of their demise. How we handle suffering goes a long way 
towards indicating whether or not we have become more and more like our king. And it has a lot to do with whether other people are going to find the kingdom. If Christians don't really look different from other people around us, especially when it comes to how we endure hardship, we don't do it with poise and grace and, and patience and peace and hardship in a way that everybody else is going to find shocking or surprising. I think we're not going to connect powerfully the way we need to with a pluralistic society because they're going to ask, do you really believe the gospel? Because it doesn't look like it. Here's the last thing. Have a look at verse 11. Fulfill the longings. The whole riot here starts, it says in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lachaeonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now mainly that's a mistake, right? Paul and Barnabas are tearing their clothes, they're frustrated, they say, no, 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 we're human beings, we're just like you, don't, don't mistake what's going on. So it's, it's mainly a mistake, but don't miss the irony. I mean, here they're, they're ready in the, in the midst of all of this to bring the message of the gospel, which is about God who did come down to us in human form. Was the crowd totally wrong? Mainly they were wrong, but, but notice something. The reason that they were willing to believe that this might be Zeus and Hermes is because there was something in their expectation, in their desire, in their own myths and legends that prepared them for that possibility. Every culture is filled with these things. With legends about supernatural things, with the gods appearing, about heroes and, and supernatural happenings. Every culture has its fantasy stories, its myths, all kinds of strange things. And yet, at the same time as their myths, they're also saying something. J.R.R. Tolkien. I've talked a lot about Tolkien this year. I think I'm on a Tolkien thing. Tolkien wrote a really a fascinating essay, though, called On fairy stories, on fairy stories. And in it, he's trying to account for the fact that the modern world is obsessed with these things. In spite of the fact that we, we live now in a generation and a culture that doesn't believe in fairies, that doesn't believe in supernatural things, that doesn't believe in miracles or anything like that, we're still almost, almost compulsively obsessed with the stories. Let me illustrate. What do you think are the top movie franchises out there in our generation? Call them out. Star Wars, number three, six trillion dollars and growing. There's another one coming out. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, who called, was that James? No, Dave. The number one franchise, nine trillion dollars being added to every year. Interestingly, both of those owned now by Disney the great sort of custodian of the fantasy life of the 20th and 21st century. Any, any guess for the other ones? Star Trek, I wish, but no. Uh, Lord of the Rings comes in at number four, interestingly penned by Tolkien. And number two made one Englishwoman very, very wealthy, wealthier than the Queen, Harry Potter, $8 trillion. $8 trillion. It really irritated Tolkien's colleagues, the literary elite of his day, 
that fantasy, that his fantasy, uh, that his friend C.S. Lewis's fantasy, Narnia, these things were so enduringly popular, it bugged them. That's not serious writing, they said. Those are children's stories. So Tolkien wrote this essay. And in the essay, he says that human beings have these four deep longings. And these are longings that, that realistic writing alone can't satisfy. It's almost like we have this itch that realistic fiction or nonfiction can't scratch or release. So here's the four things. You ready? Here's the first one. Human beings want to be able to escape time and death. And so we're fascinated by any story that tells us about traversing the halls of time and surviving death itself. Secondly, he wrote, human beings have always been fascinated with the idea of speaking to, of communicating with non-human beings. Thirdly, we, we love stories that tell us that somewhere out there, there is a love that will heal everything. And once you find it, you will never lose it. Happily ever after, right? And fourthly, we want to see the complete triumph of good over evil. Realistic fiction doesn't do any of that because we don't really believe any of that stuff. We don't believe it's going to happen. Secular world says life as you experience it with its mixture of misery and joy is all that there is. There's no supernatural. There are no spirits. There's nothing. When you die, it's over. You rot. That's it. You know that there is no love that comes without parting and separation, that you'll never be able to escape the march of death, that there are no human beings or no non-human beings out there for you to talk to, and that you will never, never see the ultimate triumph of good over evil. That's the world that we live in, and we know that. So why is it that in this modern, now postmodern world, that fantasy is more popular than ever? Here's the Christian answer. Because I think there is within the mind of human beings, or maybe the soul, I don't know, that there is, that there is a memory trace of ultimate reality. It goes back to the story of the garden in Genesis, because we're told that there in the very beginning, we were talking to non-human beings. To God himself, to angels, to who knows what else that we did have a love without parting, that we didn't have death, that there was no evil for good to triumph over. That somewhere deep within us, there's this sense that, that that's the way it was supposed to be and we can't stop sensing it or longing for it, that, that really the whole human story is wanting to get back to Eden, back to the garden. And in a sense, all the other legends and myths and stories that have been told which distorted a little bit, are a reflection of that. What we get are these sort of misrepresentations. You get a genie in a bottle and three wishes or whatever it is. Even here in Acts chapter 14, that's what's going on. The gods have come down to us. It's Zeus, it's Hermes. Because they'd heard stories about the gods doing this. It's part of their legend. They were excited because, oh my goodness, maybe it's actually happening. Maybe we actually get to converse with non-humans. Maybe we can do something to break out of the box. Maybe, maybe they'll deal with the problem of sickness as we just saw Paul healed somebody. 
but we know this is an ultimate reality. Here's what Christianity does. Think about this for a minute, and then we'll end. The secular world says, that's all just a fantasy. None of those things that you want are things that you can actually have. Of course, the myths and the legends, the old ones, they get it kind of wrong. They're always distorted, wishes and magic and stuff like that. But, but guess what? Jesus Christ is the God who really did come down. Not just another deity walking around using human beings as a playground, but to convey a love that will never end. No more parting. To promise the escape from death and that it will come a day when good really does triumph over evil. It's all going to be true. It's true in Him and it's true for you. So a person comes and, and says to me, I don't think I can be a Christian. I say, why? And maybe they respond this way. I just, I, I like some of the things that Christianity teaches, but the whole pill is just, it's too big for me to swallow. I wish I could believe it, but it's too good to be true. And I'd say, yeah, that's a problem. Let's talk. But here's what I think. If you don't at least want Christianity to be true, you don't understand it. Because it, what it really offers is the fulfillment of all of the deepest longings of a human life. That's what it promises. Believe the gospel. Let it come. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you put us in a place like Mississauga. It's challenging, but you put us here. A very pluralistic place. A very polytheistic place. God, we're surrounded by people who believe all sorts of things and most of them different from us. Maybe they don't believe us when we talk about what we stand for. And yet you've given us all of these resources in the gospel. And God, we believe and we want to declare here that there is not a person in this city who cannot be touched, who cannot be reached, who cannot be filled with hope because of the gospel. And so I pray this morning that you would make us a congregation right here at MCBC who knows this and knows how to do it well. We start here because there are real needs here and we lift them up to you in prayer. Needs for, for healing. Needs for encouragement. Needs for provision. But what starts here, God, I, I know it can build. And so we pray that you'd make all of the churches in the GTA effective in that ministry. The ministry of word and deed. Always coupled together always done in the name and in the power of Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.